Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, English Standard Version. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James, chapter 3, verse 17, English Standard Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro as we begin our wrap-up of our series on Noah, the Ark, and the Flood. This is actually the eighth episode that we've done in this series. We have devoted this much time to the Bible's account because, despite being well-known, there is a great deal of confusion that swirls around the story in our popular culture. Is that a fair statement, R.D.? I would say that's not only a fair statement, I would say it's probably a bit of an understatement. Greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. The story of Noah and the Ark is very familiar, but if you asked most people, they would probably say that the story is exactly that, just a story that happens to be in the Bible. I suspect that in today's day and age, very few people would actually say that they trust the Bible's account of Noah and the Flood as literal history. And why do you think that is? Well, in part it's because the story is such an engaging and amazing story that it's been the subject of a lot of retelling down through the years. But as is so common today, when the story is being retold, it's being subjected to that historical revisionism that plagues our entire culture today, especially in the arts and entertainment. You know, we have a lot of times when you go and see a movie or watch a TV show or something else that purportedly is based on, quote, real history or based on a true story. And then when you actually watch it, you find out that there's, let's just say there's been a lot of artistic embellishment along the way. And not too infrequently, that artistic embellishment has, in fact, distorted what was the basic facts of the history. Well, the story of Noah and the Ark, it's a memorable story all by itself. It contains all of the elements that we typically associate with great stories, whether they're true or whether they would be fictional. I mean, in the story, there's danger and drama. There's a hero who has been assigned a very difficult task. There's a titanic struggle against the raging elements that are threatening to kill the hero and his family at any moment. And ultimately, there is a victory. And the victory not only preserves mankind itself, But the victory against the raging elements, the titanic struggle, the victory is enough to save all of the animals that are necessary to repopulate the earth. So the story itself, just the plain story as it's told in the Bible, contains all of the elements that engage the human imagination. 
But of course, as I've said, the retailers just don't want to leave that very amazing story alone. No, they don't. For instance, in one recent movie that told the story of Noah and his family, as they're trying to board the ark, they are attacked by a group of local villagers. The villagers, who had previously ignored Noah's warning, now saw the flood danger approaching. Now they want to be saved, so they attack the ark. In the movie, the ark is defended by this collection of gigantic animated rock creatures who are supposed to be fallen angels. These fallen angels were supposedly imprisoned in these rock forms as punishment for helping humans after they left the Garden of Eden. Of course, Noah and his family make it on board, and so does a stowaway that they will have to fight later in the movie. And that's just the beginning of the artistic liberties the scriptwriters took with the original story. Why do you think so many retailers can't just stick with the story as it's presented in the Bible? As you say, it's pretty compelling all by itself. Well, in part, human beings are creative and imaginative. So we love to fill in the details in stories where we are not told everything. Now that can be dangerous, but it doesn't have to be. It actually can be very useful to engage what Dr. John Gerstner used to call our sanctified imaginations. But it's one thing to use our imagination to create a vision of animals marching into the ark, two by two, if you will. Now that's very consistent with the Bible story. But it's quite another thing to imagine a platoon of fallen rock-type angels fighting off an oncoming brigade of angry locals just as the floodwaters are arriving. I think that when you do that kind of thing, you're going beyond merely sanctified imagination for sure. You're even going beyond artistic liberty, and you're now involved in a deliberate distortion. And I think that part of the reason that the retailers will do this is because they don't believe that the original story is literal history. The retailers, more often than not, just see the story as a myth or a fairy tale anyway. So, in their view, why is it that they have to tell only one version of a fairy tale? In their view, their version of the fairy tale is just as permissible as any other. But, and this is a very important but, above and beyond the disbelief in the historicity of the Bible account, the retellers consciously or unconsciously realize that the story of Noah, the flood, and the ark has immense implications for the reliability of the Bible. So you think they believe that the Bible's account isn't historically credible to begin with. As such, it wouldn't make any difference to them whether they change the details or rewrite the story completely. Unfortunately, this doubt in the Noah story has implications for the reliability of the rest of Scripture. If doubt can be cast on the story of Noah, by extension doubt can be cast on the reliability of the rest of the Bible. By contrast, if the Bible's account of the flood can be shown to be a reliable report of literal history, it is a forceful demonstration of the opposite. This would mean that there is a God who created the heavens and earth and who is so involved with his creation that he intercedes when necessary to correct the course of men and nations. This makes the biblical account of Noah and the ark a dramatic example of God's sovereignty, judgment, and mercy. Exactly. You know, there are a lot of biblical accounts of actual historical events, but those events will have left very few, if any, details behind that we can investigate effectively today. For example, the prophet Elijah's battle with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, it's a compelling and engaging story too. 
But that kind of episode in history isn't going to leave behind any lasting effects on geology or even generate any artifacts that we might hope of finding today. Same thing with David's battle with Goliath, or Samson pulling down the Philistines' temple, or Daniel's experience in the lion's den. They're all great stories, and we can certainly validate some of the broad parameters of the incidents as to whether or not the Philistines were in fact enemies of Israel, or whether the Hebrews were ever captive in Babylon, or whether the Persians ever conquered the Babylonians. We can validate some of the broad historical parameters of those kinds of stories, but it's almost impossible that we would ever find any specific confirmation of these events. But now you have a worldwide flood that dramatically reduces the size of the human and animal population on the earth, and that rearranges literally the face of the earth. Well, that kind of event in history would produce effects, evidence that we can still see today. And it has. That's why the Bible critic has to discredit the original story, even if it's done by friendly means, rather than outright hostility, such as just embellishing a movie version to make it more exciting and entertaining. And this danger exists whether it's done intentionally or unintentionally. You know, it's been said that the devil would hide a pint of poison in an ocean of truth. But, and again, this is a very important but, the embellished versions of the story that circulate don't pose any danger to anyone who is thoroughly familiar with the original story, the authentic story, and who accepts the original story as literal truth. Knowing the truth, holding the truth, anchoring yourself to the truth, if you will, will inoculate you from many of the dangers that the world's false narratives will pose to the unwary. We've noted before on Anchored by Truth that when new bank tellers are being trained to spot counterfeit bills, they don't have the tellers handle a lot of counterfeits. They have them handle lots of real bills. Once the teller becomes familiar with the feel and look of real bills, they're far better prepared to spot the counterfeit. Yes. And that's one of the reasons we do Anchored by Truth. It's important that every Christian read and study the Bible for themselves. There's no substitute for that. But what we can do with these radio programs and podcasts is give faithful Christians a head start on knowing that there are verifiable facts that support the historicity of the Bible, even when the broader culture is either skeptical or outright hostile. So, where do you want to go from here? Well, today I want to begin a review of some of the high-level points, some of the big points that we've been covering during this series, before we get on to a review of some of the specific facts that support the authenticity of the biblical account. I think it's important for believers to be able to think in concrete terms about certain facts that make far more sense when viewed from the standpoint of the Bible's explanation of world history than from the view of history that might be described as the conventional wisdom of our day. I think you might want to amplify on that last thought a bit. To some people, it might sound as though we're talking about a my-truth-your-truth sort of distinction. No, not really. All anyone can do who is trying to determine what happened in the past is to look at evidence that is currently available, evidence that we can evaluate today. And this is a critical distinction between origin science and operational science. Operationally, it's easy for everyone to verify that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, because people all over the world can repeat that simple test. 
But despite the science fiction stories that abound these days, no one can go back into the past and view the events of creation or the worldwide flood. We don't have time travel. That's a great science fiction premise, but it doesn't work in the real world. And as such, all observers are interpreting current evidence to discern as best they can the truth of the past. And all observers bring a starting set of interpretive axioms to their task. And this is no less true for people who don't believe in the Bible than people who do. But one of the things that we can do is compare the results of the interpretations through those different sets of axioms, and we can see which result makes the most sense given ordinary observations of nature and empirical science. For instance, some scientists would agree that the Earth's history contained one or more ice ages in the past. Some scientists believe that they have been cyclical. Others believe there was one major one, though possibly other periods of prolonged cold temperatures. So, it is reasonable to ask what could have caused an ice age. Exactly. And the ice age is a great illustration of a case where the biblical flood account makes more sense than the conventional explanation. You know, the Bible says that the cause of the flood wasn't just a torrential rain for 40 days, but also that the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, many, if not most, biblical geologists agree that this referred not only to underwater volcanoes erupting into the oceans, but also subterranean reservoirs of extremely hot water also being injected into the oceans. Well, all those volcanic eruptions and all that hot water being injected into the ocean would form the ideal conditions for an ice age to develop. Obviously, the ocean's temperature is going to go up. Well, warm water evaporates far more quickly than cool water. So when the ocean's temperature is elevated, you're going to get a lot more evaporation, which means you're going to get much more precipitation over land for an extended period of time. At the same time, that volcanic ash pouring into the Earth's atmosphere would have produced these very fine particles that would have started reflecting sunlight. And so that would have produced a protracted period of colder weather. So these would have been the perfect conditions to allow ice sheets, huge ice sheets, to form over the land in the upper parts of the northern hemisphere and over Antarctica, you know, the polar opposites. The cooler temperatures in the summer would have reduced the glacial melt during the summer, and this would have allowed the glaciers over time to gradually extend to the limits that are now evident when we look at the surface of the Earth. But of course, this isn't the only possible explanation for how the extensive glaciers of the Ice Age could have formed, is it? Non-Christian geologists believe that change in the tilt of the Earth's axis may have produced extended periods of colder temperature, conceivably up to thousands or even tens of thousands of years. And that conventional explanation is another possible explanation for the Ice Ages, But the kinds of effects that are proposed in the Earth's orbital geometry would frankly just have had too small an effect to produce the ice ages. And if the Earth had cooled gradually in that way, it would over time have become much drier because there would have been less evaporation from the cooling oceans into the atmosphere, not more. So if there's less evaporation from the oceans, that would have reduced the amount of precipitation over the land. That would have reduced snow development. And so all of that would have reduced the likelihood you would have had the formation of these enormous ice sheets, which all scientists agree once existed. By some calculations, in the conventional explanations scenario, the air would have been as much as 60% drier 
Well, air that dry, that's pretty much a fatal problem for the recurrent precipitation freeze accumulation cycle that would have been required to genuinely create those enormous ice sheets. And that's why the Ice Age is a major challenge for secular scientists. You know, there are actually over 60 different ideas, theories, if you will, on the origin of the Ice Age. And that's why David Alt, who is a professor of geology at the University of Montana, flatly stated, although theories abound, no one really knows what causes Ice Ages. Well, this is a case where the biblical history, the history of Noah and the flood, and how the Bible describes that occurred, makes a perfect foundation for how an ice age could occur. Okay. So the point is that, dependent on your starting axioms, there are competing theories about how the ice age could have been caused. And this is a perfect illustration where the biblical explanation is at least plausible, if not more so, than the alternatives that come from secular science. Right? Right. This is a case where the explanation that comes from a biblical viewpoint explains the conditions that fit precisely with the empirical observations. And the biblical explanation has an added benefit of not requiring any additional explanation for what could have caused the hypothesized shifts in the tilt of the Earth's axis. Now, obviously, every observer has to make their own determination about which explanation they choose to accept. But it would be entirely unfair, even unreasonable, to say that the biblical explanation is unscientific just because we get the basis of our explanation from Scripture. Right. The biblical point of origin for the explanation of the Ice Age is no less scientific than the secular point of origin, and as you trace out the line of reasoning that comes from each, the biblical explanation is at least as viable, if not more so. But you are very unlikely to ever hear a secular scientist admit that at one point during Earth's history, there was a worldwide flood, notwithstanding all the available evidence that is consistent with that possibility. Why do you say that? Because a worldwide flood that destroyed just about every form of land or bird life on the Earth at the time the flood occurs would be fatal to the whole evolutionary hypothesis. So, again, why do you say that? Well, let's think about this for just a second. Let's say that there was a worldwide flood at some point in the Earth's history. Well, the fossil evidence tells us that it would have been at a period in our history when there were large land creatures that were abundantly distributed around the world. So in terms of evolutionary history, this would have been late in world history, not early, because a substantial portion of the supposed evolutionary process would already have been completed by that point. Well, if there was a worldwide flood that wiped out those land animals and birds, all of that evolutionary work, evolutionary work in quotes, would have been wiped out. Well, the conventional wisdom is that dinosaurs disappeared from the earth about 65 million years ago. So a worldwide flood event that wiped them out would have been less than 65 million years ago. Well, 65 million years is a drop of time in the conventional bucket that dates the Earth at billions of years. So the amount of time between the flood and now wouldn't be anywhere near enough to go through an entirely new evolutionary cycle to produce the biodiversity that we see on the Earth today. But the evolutionary cycle wouldn't have had to begin from scratch. Even if the flood event wiped out all or even most of the land creatures and birds, many marine animals would still have survived, wouldn't they? 
Well, let's just accept that as a possibility. Let's agree that the flood destroyed only land animals and birds and the marine animals survived. Most of the marine animals survived, including possibly some marine mammals. Well, the question then would become, why would those remaining animals evolve to produce the same kind of land species that had just been wiped out? Remember, the evolutionary hypothesis completely eliminates any form of change that isn't entirely sponsored by random forces. As touted, evolution works only through randomly occurring mutations and then fortuitous natural selection. I see what you're saying. The evolutionary hypothesis only purports to explain what happened once entirely by chance. Evolution purports to tell what did happen, not what had to happen. According to evolution, every form of life on this world is here entirely by chance. In the evolutionary world, there's no superintending intelligence that knows that the land that merges after the flood needs to be repopulated. In the evolutionary scenario, nature is completely blind and unguided. Evolution completely excludes any form of direction or purpose. So. Just because, supposedly, fish became amphibians, and amphibians became reptiles, and reptiles became birds and mammals, once, there's no reason that would have to happen again. A blind nature has no way of knowing all of its previous work has been undone and has to be redone. Bingo. The moment you introduce repetition into the equation, now you're in the world of design, purpose, and intention. And all of those are completely foreign to evolutionary notions. And if you start saying things like the laws of nature mean evolution must occur, then you are again subtly injecting the notions of purpose, design, and goals into your paradigm. But evolution specifically excludes those ideas. And even if some unthinking set of physical, chemical, or biological principles leans in the direction of producing ever more complex living creatures, in 65 million years or less, there simply would not have been enough time for random mutations and fortuitous natural selection to produce all the biodiversity that we see around us. I suppose an evolutionist might assert that some land creatures and birds might have survived even if all the land were flooded. We acknowledge the possibility that there were large mats of floating vegetation on which some species of plants or animals might have survived. And that's not impossible, but it doesn't really solve the problem. Even large mats of floating vegetation wouldn't have been able to sustain creatures of much size like giraffes or lions or elephants or any creatures of that kind of size. They just wouldn't have been able to survive on a floating mat of vegetation. Large animals at a minimum need large amounts of food, and that would have been hard to come by even on a large mat of vegetative debris. Now, Noah could keep some large animals alive because he had the ability to plan for their food and waste needs, and God or Noah would certainly have selected the best representatives to reproduce. But planning and selection require intelligence. That's one thing that the evolutionists always claim has never been present throughout the evolutionary cycle. Even some carrion birds might have survived in a global flood because there would have been plenty of floating carcasses around for them to eat on. But even then, it would have taken a pretty fortuitous combination of the carrion where they could feed when they needed to and then mats of floating vegetation where they could rest when they're not feeding. 
So overwhelmingly, the vast majority of birds would have perished, and all of that would have left a very poor start for the future replenishment of the entire earth. Well, an evolutionist might assert that the biblical creationists have the same problem. That's not enough time since the flood ended, on a biblical timescale, about 4,500 years ago, to produce that biodiversity. Well, that is comparing the proverbial apples and oranges. All evolution has to work with is blind chance. But biblical creationists maintain that God designed adaptability into the DNA of the creatures he made. The evolutionary toolbox only has two tools, blind chance and time. The biblical toolbox has design, purpose, and intentionally specified organization and information to guide the subsequent speciation of the animal kinds that Noah saved. In the biblical scenario, purpose and intention are evident throughout. You know, a human mechanic who is given access to the tools and materials can produce a car a whole lot faster than randomly tumbling those tools and materials in a giant cement mixer. So the point you're making is that a purely secular science is just about foreclosed from ever admitting that there was ever a worldwide flood. Yes. A worldwide flood at any point in the last hundred million years, or billion years for that matter, that destroys land animals and birds is fatal to the idea that evolution is a mechanism that could produce life on this earth as we see it. And even leading evolutionists admit that other than divine creation, there is no third alternative for explaining life on the earth. So next time, we're going to continue to wrap up our series on Noah by reviewing some of the specific evidence that we have been covering that demonstrates that the biblical flood account can be reasonably accepted as literal history. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for fathers, the roles of fathers in helping their kids or grandkids to develop a sturdy and sustainable faith cannot be overstated, and we should all be grateful for the fathers that we had that helped us. A prayer for fathers. Lord God Almighty, you are the strength and stability of my life. In you we have the security of knowing that you love and accept us no matter what condition we are in when we come to you. Yet we also have the inspiration of knowing that you call us to live holy and pure lives. Your desire for each of us is to mature and become better citizens of your kingdom and better servants to our community. Thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you want the best for us. Lord, I come to you today to seek your blessing on my Father. In the Bible, you have invited us to call you Father, so we know that being a Father is a role never to be taken lightly. I pray that you would help my Father to be the kind of model that you want him to be and that you would be the special power in his life that enables him to fulfill his role. I know that often my father struggles with so many competing priorities. He wants to be many things to many different people, and in our fallen world, none of us will ever live up fully to what we expect of ourselves. Help him to understand, Lord, that as long as he sets his heart on you and seeks first to be a faithful son to you, that all the other things will be added to his life. 
I pray for health and strength for my father. You know better than any of us when he is tired or hurt, so I pray that you would grant him healing, health, and restoration as he grows weary or ill. I pray that you would comfort him as he finds cares and troubles pressing about him. You know that my father wants to be a problem solver and take the burden from others' shoulders. Help him to do all he can, but I also pray that you would send him your peace when it's time for him to rest from his labor. I pray that you would surround him with friends and companions. I know that he loves being with family, and I pray that ours will always be a close one. But I also know that there are times when he needs to be with good friends who can provide him with companionship that comes from a set of truly devoted friends. I pray that he would be a blessing to them, and they to him. You are truly our great Father. We know of your love and affection for us because you sent your Son to tell us about you and then ordained that he should die to save us. We are awed by his great love and yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.